like I said, Psalm 25, 1 through 11. I'll begin with the odd and the congregation, the even numbers. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Indeed, none of these uh, who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without uh, cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the son of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Amen. Please be seated. So here again you see another psalm written by David, a man who certainly knew the God of Israel, the one true living God. And in his writing this, again, it just opens up his relationship as to who this God is. To him. In the beginning, I lift up my soul to you, O Lord. O my God, in you I trust. So often, as we walk through our lives, we kind of not trust him. We, we take that trust back. It's so easy to say, Yeah, I trust him and everything is good. But when those hard times, when that illness comes, when the death in the family comes, when the mortgage is due and the and the uh, money isn't there, where is your trust? Where is that peace that comes, that surpasses all understanding when we are uh, faithful in the Lord and we know who our God is, that he is the mighty one, has everything in his hands. Here David talks about how uh, his judgments ought to be righteous and, and are correct in the way that God looks at things. And one thing I noticed as we go through, go through this psalm is David never talks about the law. As a good Jewish king, follower of God, he certainly would have been deep in the law and knowing the, the standards by which God set between the... Uh, the Ten Commandments and the, and the laws from Leviticus, he, I'm sure he followed them. But as you look at this, make, make me know your ways, O Lord. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Remember me, O Lord, in your compassion and your loving kindness. He's not talking about, have I met the standards of your law? Help me to achieve the perfection of what the law requires. Because he knew he couldn't make it. He was a man of war. He, he was the king of, at, and committed sins. He was a normal human being. But he knew that the God of Israel was one who looked upon him with mercy and loving kindness. 
that in God's justice he would see that he is just a frail individual, as any one of us would be. But yet, this frail individual who was to lead a nation for God also knew that he trusted in this God, where he talks about how he is the God of my salvation. It wasn't going to be in achieving 100% perfection in the law, but it was going to be the workings of God in bringing him into a fellowship with God. And that's what salvation's all about, having that relationship with God, knowing that there is this transcendent being out there that we can't see, we can't touch, but yet he talks to us through his word, through prayer. He communicates with us. He lets us know he is there for us, that we can rest and trust in his goodness. And throughout this, he talks about how he leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his ways, which brings me to the Beatitudes. The humble shall, shall, the meek shall inherit the earth. David certainly knew that. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. For those who have faith in him, they are. To the enemies of God, they would see his wrath and his, and his uh, strength in those ways. But to those who have faith in God, and the last line, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquities, for it is great. You know, you stand there before this God and you say, forgive me, Lord. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I want to look good when I go to church on Sunday. Not because I want to look good amongst the the congregation or the fellowship or, or where I work. But I want you to make me righteous, Lord, for your name's sake. So that when I have the opportunities to share things about you, give witness, give testimony as to what you're doing in my life, that I can be seen as one who is speaking for the Lord. That you have brought me into that salvation. That I would represent you for your name's sake. So that's just the first half of this psalm. We'll continue next week. Oh, and by the way, I was going with open the eyes of my heart, Lord, but it didn't pan out today. I didn't know. Because that was a yellow song. It's quite the humbling word to step up in the pulpit after. That's a pretty good word there. Uh, you, you know, I do want to say I, I appreciate that, Pastor Steve. I, I think um, the judgments of God, as I've studied out, you know, this has been a the season of fire we've been calling, right, from June to August. And... Uh, talking about the judgment of God, right? We're seeing this in the book of Exodus. We're seeing this as we talk about the book of Revelation. And one thing I've definitely known in what Pastor Steve just pointed out is that when God's judgment is shown, it's revealed in two different ways. Those that do not see his loving kindness and his grace, unfortunately, they see it as destruction and devastation and horrible things, right? The wrath of God. Whereas those that do understand the loving kindness, the grace, the mercy of God, and have that opportunity to have the favor of God in their lives, we can rejoice in the judgments that we do understand look harsh, right? And that's one of the things as a Christian, I read the book of Revelation, and I always wonder, I say, you know, because we're known by the book of Revelation as Christians, and uh, I always wonder, you know, that's what the world knows about us. They read the book of Revelation and they say, wow, the Christians, that's some scary stuff. But again, for us, it's the truth of God, it's love, it's it's things we rejoice in because God has made them known. So uh, I appreciate that, Pastor Steve. Thank you. 
Good word. And uh, I want to bring us over to Exodus today. And today's sermon is entitled, When Pharaoh Let the People Go. It's actually the first words of the verse we're going to look into here in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. If I may preface the message with a couple things, um, what we've been doing in this season of fire is taking a look at the Exodus. And my challenge to us, as we began back in June, was that when you go through the story of the Exodus, which again is a pattern for what we see in the book of Revelation, or ultimately the whole New Testament, um, when you go through that, you read a lot about three major things. You read about the love of God and the love people are supposed to have for God. You read about the passion God has for his people and the passion that he requires from his people. Again, he takes his people out of Egypt, but he requires them to go through the wilderness and follow after him. And then the last thing was the judgments of God. Right? You see these judgments of God being made known upon Egypt in Exodus. You see the judgment of God being made known upon spiritual Egypt in the book of Revelation. And I've challenged that there's a third Exodus, and that's the applicational aspect. First Exodus being from Egypt, second Exodus being out of law, Jerusalem. Third Exodus is in our lives. How does this become a reality? How, does, how do we come to understand the first Exodus, the second Exodus, and then say, okay, so these details apply to me. This is what I need to understand. And that's going to be my goal this morning. I'm, I'm, going to hope, I'm, I'm hoping that as I press into the text this morning, that it's a message for us, the saints, the church. This is going to be a message for us. This isn't a message we would go out there and start confusing the world with. But as I look to the first Exodus, I wonder, and I constantly ask myself, I say, well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 He says that the Exodus, again pointing to the physical Exodus from Egypt, he says that that was an example for us upon whom the ends of the age has come. And I'm saying us, talking like the Apostle Paul, not me. Um, You know, again, they were living in that terminal generation. They were living in those last days. So the Apostle Paul says that the Exodus was an example for us. And again, there's many things that we've been marking out in the last couple weeks Um, about the Exodus and how they parallel to the book of Revelation. Um, My goal is to push us a little bit further this morning. So last week, I had qualified that when we look at the Passover setting there in Exodus, that we're seeing, yes, judgments being made known upon Pharaoh and the people are coming out of bondage in Egypt, right? And ultimately, that the, the judgment of the death of the firstborn. And we talked about the blood and we saw the beautiful parallel between that and Jesus Christ. So I would say that The taking out of Egypt, God letting, making the Pharaoh let the people go, was the beginning of the journey. It's the beginning of the walk, right? Because again, they're not free. They're not in the promised land. They're not living in the promise. They have a lot of stuff to go through. And I said last week that that parallels with the cross. So the cross, if you think about being a saint in the first century and you've seen Jesus get crucified, yes, that's the blood on the doorpost. That's the death of the firstborn. But there's still trials to go through. And we know, you know, that generation, those next 40 years were pretty intense for the Christian community, similar to what the Exodus was for the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. A very intense wilderness journey is what uh, the scholars would call it or the Bible teachers would call it. And I don't believe it's that far off, and I imagine many of you would agree with me, that when we come to a point of accepting Christ in our life and we come out of bondage to whatever you're in bondage to in this world, whatever it might be, that that's the beginning of the journey as well, right? So if the first exodus, you come out of Egypt and you still have this whole 40-year wilderness journey to go through, the second exodus, the cross, and there's still the, the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, all those things, in our lives, there's a component to when we come out of bondage to the things of the world, there's a wilderness journey. 
there's you know and i don't know i don't know where we put it do we put it uh in your life where's the end of the journey is it when you find complete contentment i don't know if we'll find it in this life um actually i'm probably more set on the side of we won't find it in this life so the completeness of my journey is in attention of every day and eternity every day and eternity that's what i'm living in i'm living in i want to find contentment to the extreme today but I also know that ultimately it will be provided in eternity. And that's my point is, is that's what I believe the Israelites, as they left Exodus, as they left Egypt, they were living the promise in that moment every day as they were journeying. They weren't in Egypt anymore, right? They're taken out of Egypt, but they still have, a, still have work to do. They still have to follow God. They still have to wait for the promised land. So again, it was a, we have it right now, but it's still far off. And I think that's for us, too. I, I, you know, I, I think in our lives, right? We, we talk about eternal life, an age-enduring life, life to the full. Uh, you know, I, I know that we can rejoice right now. Prayerfully, everybody would stand with me and say, we can rejoice in Christ right now, that we have it all. Second Peter chapter 1, he has given to us, not he will give to us. He has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So we can rejoice right now. However, I'm sure we could also sit there and we go around the room and people would say, all right, I am expecting more. Right? There's still a, a far off. So there's a freedom from the bondage in Egypt in our lives right now. We're going to use that. Let's say we're the, we're the ones. Egypt is our whatever we're in bondage to in this world. So there's a freedom from it because prayerfully you've moved away from it. However, there's still work to do to completely move away from it or to move to wherever you want to be. Following? Okay, good. Um, so that's my challenge. And what I want to do is I want to give us three basic pieces of wisdom this morning that I believe is the wisdom in the midst of that journey. So anytime you find yourself coming out of bondage to something, I want to give you three things that you can remind yourself of that I believe are drawn from the first exodus, were used in the second exodus in the first century, and are applicable in our lives for what I would call the third exodus. So the three things. Matter of fact, let me bring us to the text first. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Okay, starting at verse 17. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them through the way, God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, unless I lead these people and they repent and they, turn, they see the war and they return back to Egypt, so God led the people about through the way of the wilderness around the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up armed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn to the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones away with you. And they took their journey from Sakoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them by the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God takes them out of Egypt and he takes them a different way. Right? My, my translation says, although the way was near, but it, in modern language we would say, although it was closer. Right? It was the, 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 uh, the way of the Philistines, if they would have went that way, they would have gotten to the promised land a lot quicker. A lot quicker. However, God took them as one preacher I, I listened to this week said the long way what happens when god takes us the long way scenic route. the scenic route 
It's kind of like life, right? Then you feel like sometimes when it comes to fulfillment in your life and satisfaction that God takes the long way. Like there was a, wasn't there a shortcut that we could have taken to get here? But God always seems to take the long way. And matter of fact, when you go to Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, and you read a little bit about the, you know, what ends up happening with this story of God leading them through the wilderness, you read that they became impatient. And I imagine, you know, here we are, 21st century Americans, that resonates with everybody. I don't have to ask us. I know it resonates with us because we're an impatient people. We want it now. We want fast food. We want fast everything. So these people, I can only imagine their frustration. Imagine their frustration. Why are we going this way? Aren't we supposed to? The, the short way, the short way. So God takes us the long way. And what I'm going to call this, what we're going to call this this morning, if you're writing notes, I would say write down God's providence. It's God's providence. And my point is, is that when it comes to God doing a work, and especially in a work of taking people out of bondage, the first thing that it starts with is God's providential care, God doing something. And uh, we see this in quite a few places. Matter of fact, I correlate this to the second exodus. I like to make patterns because I believe that's what we're supposed to do with this. So when you look at the first exodus and you say, okay, so they're being led out of Egypt. In the New Testament, we know they were being led away from the law, right? And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is explaining judgment upon the law. And he says that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, he says that unless those days were shortened. Interesting. So he's talking about the days of the end, right? And it's going to be a big calamity, a big tribulation. And God, for some strange reason, says, if those days, well, those days will be shortened, because if they were not, even the elect would be deceived. You see God's providential care? God even cared about the elect in the second exodus. He knew well, I'm going to have to have a timing. I'm going to have to do this my way. You see, that's what it is. It's God's way. And he says that the, the end times was shortened for the sake of the elect. And then I, I sat here and I thought about it. I said, that's interesting. Because in the first exodus, God did something that showed his providential care as well. He took them a different way. And the reason being, if you, you want me to explain why he took them that way, is that uh, if you look on your map, matter of fact, on the front of your bulletin, If you look on the map, well, I give you a little bit of the journey here. If you, you look to the left, you have a Ramses or Zone, and that's where they're coming from, up there by Goshen, and they're coming out of Egypt. And if you look at the top there, you see that little dotted line at the top of the land there? What that is, is that's Egyptian um, military garrison set up all along that area there, all the way up, going up into the northern part of Israel. So that's why God, very simply, that's why God didn't take them that way. Imagine them bumping into Egyptian garrisons the entire time. God knew that. So he led them a different way. The long way. A way that wouldn't cause them to turn back right away because it was too soon. And again, when you, you read the journey of the Israelites, I know we've all read it, you read the journey and you see they, they grumble, they complain, they're beaten down. They've been in bondage for 400 years. So, you know, it's when, and I know we could probably all qualify this. When you're in bondage to something, it has power over you. Right? So... Imagine how they felt coming out of Egypt and how many times do we see we should just go back because we're hungry and we're going to get there. I don't want to go too far ahead of us. But um, again, we see that we know the after effect. Perfectly, you know the story of the Exodus. You know that they grumble so much along this journey. So God, in his providential care, turns them away. He says, we're going to go a different way. Now I want to take us to a different text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. An often used and abused Bible text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So this text, of course, we've all heard the thing, and many of you probably heard me talk on this before, where people say, um, God won't give you any more than you can handle. That's the proof text right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. So you come out of bondage to Egypt. You've been in bondage for 400 years. And God says, I'm going to take you on a 40-year journey through the wilderness. I would like to say that right there, that was something they could not handle. See my point? Yeah, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle, but it's not according to your design. Not what you think you can handle. God won't give you any more than you can handle according to his design. What I think the right thing for us to internalize, because again, I can't imagine being an Israelite that leaves Egypt. I've been in bondage for 400 years, and then, don't worry, you can handle this. 40 years in the wilderness of armies chasing after you, starving, you know, not knowing what to eat. And you think that this is what I can handle. And I know I'm not the only person in my life, I'll tell you what, and you know I've prayed this, I've told everybody here, that there's been times in my life where I sat there and I said, God, I can't handle anymore. This is it. This has to be the last trial or whatever you're going to put me through because I can't handle it anymore. And then I always come back and I say, that's me leaning upon my own understanding. That's not me accepting God's providence in my life. Because I would say, and many of you have heard me say this, that God will give you more than you can handle to equip you to where you need to be. You see, that's what God's doing with Israel. He's not saying, oh, don't worry, I know that you guys have a limit, so I'm not going to give you any more than you can handle. He's saying, no. I'm going to give you more than you can handle, but I'm going to do it my way. So he didn't send them the north to go deal with the Egyptian garrisons. He brought them the long way. And he, he did it because he had a lot of things he was going to teach them through that journey. The long way. So I'm okay with that. And prayerfully, you're okay with that. So now if you're coming out of bondage to something and you know what, you're wondering, uh, if you're coming out of bondage or you've come out of bondage, you can qualify that the first thing is God's providence. It's God doing something, God caring, and he will. He won't give you any more than you can handle, but again, that won't be qualified according to uh, carnal human effort. Because again, the first century saints, this is, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is written to a church that's being beaten down, trotted, and persecuted. And yet it's telling them God won't give you any more than you can handle. Think about that. That's, that's scary. These people are being hung on crosses. They were, they're, not this time, but within a couple of years, after this letter is written, these people received the worst persecution known to this planet, at, at least at that time, and even now. Most people qualify the Neronian persecution as one of the worst persecutions against Christians ever. And these people experienced it. So I don't know how we can qualify that he won't give you any more than you can handle. What that really does for me is that makes me realize that's not what I think I can handle. He won't give you any more than you can handle according to his care, his providence, his understanding. So let's continue further here. So he leads them a different way. He takes them the long way. And then we go into the next verses. I got to bring myself back to Exodus. We go into the next verses and we read about how Moses took the bones of Joseph. It says, uh, verse 19, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had straightly sworn to the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones away. God will surely visit you. Joseph had faith. We see this in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. It says that Joseph by faith declared to Israel that God will visit you. And then he told them to carry his bones with him. 
which in my notes I wrote down, uh, the significance of carrying the bones is it's a covenant thing. It's, it's you know, it's um, everything Israel did was going to have to do with those that went before them and those that would come after them. It was, and that's important for us to think about too. So um, what I wrote down here, that what I want you to write down in your notes would be covenant significance. So not only is God's providence seen when you're coming out of bondage, one of the ways that you can encourage yourself, which Joseph did to the, the community then, and ultimately Jacob walked worthy of, he took Joseph's admonishment to take the bones, is to understand the significance of the, the things that are going on. In this case, it's a covenant significance. When we're talking about things of faith, the way that we should qualify the things that we understand about our faith is, how does this pertain to God's covenant? How does this pertain to those that have gone before me? How does this pertain to those that go after me? And that's important because it's encouraging. That's the way that the first century church was encouraged in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's talking about the resurrection of the dead. It's reminding them that the ones that went before you are going to take part in this. They're, they're a part of this. And, I, and also Hebrews chapter 11 verses 39 through 40 brings up the same thing. And that's important. You know, I read that passage there and I said, what was the significance of them taking the bones? Well, why would it have been important for Joseph to remind them to take the bones? Because it was his declaration of faith. If you think about it, Joseph's telling them when they're in the land of Egypt, he's saying, don't worry, God will visit you. He will take you out of here. He'll get you out of here. And when you do it, take my bones to remind you that I I spoke by faith. You see, so taking those bones was like an encouragement. It it showed them covenant significance to uh, what God was doing through this people as he was leading them out of bondage in Egypt. I think that's important. When I look at bondage, right, and I understand things that I've come out of bondage to, the way I assess a lot of times and I encourage myself is I think of... uh, where it began, the bondage, or wherever something began, and ultimately where it's going to end. I try to look at the big picture. That's my point there, the big picture. So not only do we look at God's providence in our lives when we're going through coming out of bondage, we also we look at the significance of the details. We look at the full picture of what God is doing. And that's again, that's how Israel walked worthy of the things God had for them. They always understood God's providence in the, the details, what God was doing, and they identified the covenant significance of what was happening. How does this pertain to those that have gone before us and those that will come after us? And then you move into the next part of the passage here. It says they went, they journeyed, and again, verse 20, they journeyed from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. I've seen commentators do, they could write stories on that one verse. Me, I read it and I say, it looks pretty simple, right? It's, they traveled from one spot to another. I gave you a chart on the front of your bulletin. Seems pretty simple to me. So let's move into verse 21. Uh, and the Lord went before them by the day in the pillar of a cloud to lead them by way and by night by a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. And of course, we see the cloud and the fire here. And these are both used all throughout scripture to talk about the presence of God. All throughout scripture. Clouds. Again, we see the Shenica cloud that fills the temple and fills it so much that the people couldn't even fit in. Remember, the priests couldn't even get in the temple. Um, and then fire, we know the Lord appeared to Moses in this story, matter of fact, in the Exodus. He appeared to the, uh, Moses in a, a consuming fire, a bush that was on fire with a consuming fire. So uh, what we're talking about here is the presence of God, and that, that would be what I'd write in my notes. So the three things you should have written down would be God's providence, covenant significance, and the presence of God. I know I don't want to go into any op- anything in my life. First off, I don't know that I'd come out of bondage to anything if the presence of God wasn't going before me. So I know in my personal life, in my testimony, I know that. I'm talking about anything, though, anything you might be in bondage to. But I know that when I was in bondage to sin and death in my life, that without God, his presence going before me and establishing me, I know I wouldn't be standing in front of all of you today. 
and neither would you be sitting there if God didn't go before you. So the presence of God is important. We want to qualify that. So anytime I'm dealing with something of bondage, and again, I want to kind of qualify and explain what I'm saying here, is that anytime I'm going through bondage or I'm coming out of something that had me in bondage, um, I know that it's a journey, right? We all know that. It's a journey when you come out of bondage to something. And the way I qualify how God would speak to me through those experiences is to find out what God taught his people when they were coming out of times of bondage. And here, what it would seem is that the things God is making known in Exodus 13, 17 through 22, is that his providence went before them, right? He cared for them. He knew. He knew what they were going to experience out there in the wilderness. So he directed them the way he wanted them to go. He, or well, they, they knew that all of this had to pertain to God's covenant. This pertained to things Joseph said. Again, the one thing, uh, it's not just one thing, but the one definite thing that the Hebrew people had that it seems a lot of times we miss is how it all ties together from the very first person that comes into covenant, as we talked about in our Sunday school this morning, about how you know the Jews understood that those that died, they would go to Hades, but they had to have something to do with the promise that would come later on. It all has to be, everybody's included. So I say covenant significance because it, I look at, for example, coming out of bondage to something, I would say, um, what would be the significance of this? Who are people that struggled with this, that have gone before, have dealt with this bondage, this thing that I'm in bondage to? Who are people that have gone through that? And, and that seems to be what Moses is doing with taking the bones of Joseph. It's almost as though they, uh, they understood that Joseph experienced the same things they did as the people of God. They understood that Joseph definitely experienced bondage. And uh, so they understood that. And then the last thing would be the presence of God. Again, you know, so coming out of bondage, you want God's providence. You want to understand the significance of the details. And then you want God's presence to not only be in front of you. Um, I, I would like the, uh, what's that, the prayer of St. Patrick where he says, uh, God is in front of me. God is beside me. God is inside of me. God is underneath me. God is, because that's where you want God's presence. You want to be saturated by the presence of God. Ultimately, I will tell you that the whole purpose of this exodus coming out of Egypt, coming out of bondage, was to saturate people with the presence of God. That's what he does now. This whole pillar of fire and pillar of cloud is God is with them, God is in their midst, and he doesn't leave. That's a beautiful verse there in verse 22, by the way. It says, He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night before the people. Does it stay that way? Does it stay that way that God goes before them continually and he keeps leading them all the way and stuff, stuff like that? Well, there's plenty of places in Scripture where we see that God removes his presence. For example, Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Verse 39 says, Well, this is telling you, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give by light. Um, Isaiah 4, 5 through 6 talks about the same thing. Um, Revelation chapter 21 ultimately qualifies that you don't need the sun, the moon, or light for... Um, fire for the light because now Jesus is ultimately the light and he is the cloud, um, the presence of God that dwells with God's people. And uh, there's also significance to that, that this, uh, this cloud of fire and night follows them for 40 years. Um, you see a lot of this in talking about the second century and the 40 years through the wilderness and the Holy Spirit, which is another fun conversation um, we could have. <laughs> I'd love to go there soon. Um, my point is that with the presence of God, that's where we become changed. And you see the presence of God in AD 70, if we're looking at that second pattern there, the first century church, after the cross, they lived the Passover, so they're coming out of bondage to law. 
And then AD 70 comes about and you have the presence of God made known. And that presence changed the people of God. It changed them. Sort of like if you're coming out of bondage to something, whatever it might be. You know, I, I, sometimes I wonder when I'm talking, I say, what would, what would they be in bondage to? Right? You guys just look like a free group of people to me. So, uh, but either way, um, we're all in bondage to something. Right? I actually, I posted on my social media thing, to make a side note here, I posted on social media yesterday that uh, even the holiest person you know has junk they're dealing with, you know, I, I, no matter who they are. So we all have things that we're coming out of bondage to um, that, you know, that we're, we're assessing. And when I look at that, I say, okay, so you follow this pattern and uh, ultimately you want to end up with the presence of God. You don't want to be like the text I wanted to bring up before was Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, where the presence of God has been taken away from you. God is no longer going in front of you because you're stubborn, because you didn't recognize his providence, you didn't recognize covenant significance, and you didn't recognize the presence of God behind you, before you, where anywhere. You don't want to be like Isaiah chapter 1, same thing. Ezekiel chapter 10, same thing. God removes his presence from people. So again, that verse there in uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 22 is beautiful that he did not remove his presence from among them. And that's the promise that we should look to. So I want to end today. I'm going to end a bit short because I imagine some of you are hungry. And, uh, and uh, I want to make a point. I want to end with a very simple point. If we're looking at this pattern here of the first century, or I'm sorry, we're looking at the pattern of Exodus, and we're saying that the Exodus pattern was supposed to teach God's people something. So when they came out of Exodus and God led them a different way, took them a long journey, made them carry bones with them of Joseph, and then dwelt among them and guided them through the whole wilderness, what was that supposed to teach the people of Israel? What did all that, what would you say those three things taught the people of Israel from that moment forward? That we can trust God, God's providence. He knows better than I do. That there's significance, there's, the details are important. That's the way I want to put it. The details are important. And I say that because why did they carry Joseph's bones? You know, I'd urge you to do a little bit of a study on that. It's interesting because there's quite a few different versions of what people think. Um, Again, I would say it's covenant significance. It's the details are important. When we're talking about the things of God, and we know that here, the details are important. You see, they qualify the rest of the story. So covenant significance is very important. That the, The people coming out of Egypt knew that. Let's carry the bones of Joseph because it's important to take with us our history, those that have struggled with us. And then the presence of God, again, knowing what goes before you, having faith. So it would be trusting God. And by the way, trusting God and having faith are a little bit different. I'm going to show you how. So trusting God, you could trust in God's providence, but not trust in God's presence. That make sense? You can trust in God's providence. I had to think about that a lot yesterday. Don't confuse them now. Don't confuse them. Um, Trusting in God's providence is saying, okay, God cares about me. God knows more the right way more than I do. God's presence is actually being willing to follow. You see? So you could trust in the providence. I know a lot of people. That's, everybody trusts in the providence of God. I hear people say it all the time. Oh, yeah, God. God knows much better than I do. You're okay. You willing to follow him? You sure? Do you really, are you willing to follow the pillar by, you know, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night? Because that's the big difference. So we need to qualify all three of those today. And my goal is that if you're coming out of bondage to something, if you're praising God for taking you out of bondage to something, that those three things I mentioned would be clear to you. You would say, God's providence is made known in my life. In the first century, the saints, when they came out of all the things after the cross and the parousia and the, the judgment of the last days, I know that they would have said those three things as well. They would have said, 
God cares about us. His ways are not our ways. He leads us the long way. He takes us the longer way to teach us the lessons he needs to teach us. And then they said, wow, our covenant. God made this known going all the way back to Adam. And he's made it complete in Jesus Christ. And all the details are important. And that's why they're mentioned. That's why the book's so big. It's a big book because it's all important. And they knew that. That's why they said, we've got to take the bones of Joseph. They didn't say, you notice they didn't come out of Egypt. And they said, all right, time to start new. They didn't do that. They said, no, all of this stuff that went before us is important. It needs to be considered. The details are important. So I would challenge us that when we talk about the things of God and we talk about coming out of bondage to stuff, that we would pay attention to the details. And then the last thing again, the presence of God. Just being saturated with the presence of God. And as we move out of the season of fire that we've been talking about here, going through the exodus and everything else, um, and judgment, um, as we move into August, my goal is actually to lead us into a season of saturation, where now that you come out of the exodus, God's taken the dirt off of you, you know, you've repented, you, you've kind of gone through all, that, through all of that, and you know these things, you know the, the providence of God, you know the covenant significance, you know the presence of God, now what? Now you need to become so saturated with it so that you can saturate others. That you would have, as Jesus said, you would have rivers of water flowing out of you. Right? That, that's, you're saturating things. And that's the goal in all that we do. So let us move past coming out of bondage and let's look forward to saturating ourselves in the word of God, in the presence of God. Because again, that was the lasting effect, that the presence of God would go before them and that he would not take it away. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we do thank you for the examples you make known through Scripture. We do thank you for your providence in leading the Israelites through the Exodus, Lord, or your, uh, your care in all of the details that you remind us in Scripture, that you remind us in the Spirit, that you encourage us to study to show ourselves approved, Lord. Remembering that which, goes, that which was before us and having faith in that which will go after us, Lord. And of course... Trusting and knowing your presence, Lord, we rejoice in your presence. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that we've been given pertaining to life and godliness, which surely begins with your presence in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.